The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Well, today, of course, is a uh, special day for churches all around the world, all throughout church history. Anybody know what it's called? Palm Sunday, right. Um, So this day gets its name from the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem at the height of his ministry. We'll remember Jerusalem was the capital city politically and spiritually for Israel. And so it was packed with crowds, and the crowds were thrilled as Jesus was entering, and they were laying their cloaks on the ground before him, and what were they waving? Palms. But what is it all about? What's Palm Palm Sunday all about? Why were they doing this? It was about one major thing. They were saying... You are the king we've been waiting for. You're the king we've been waiting for. Palm Sunday is all about who's the king. They were saying, you are our hope for a happy life. They were saying of Jesus, you are our hope for a peaceful place to live. You are our hope for a good future for our children. You are our hope to escape the torment of Roman rule. You are our vindication that we are God's people. They were celebrating Jesus as their kind of king. Shockingly, ironically, what we heard read today happens, what, a couple days later. What happens to have thousands of thousands of people all welcoming the king to the city and then having that same group of people hanging him on a cross days later. What happens? Well, first thing, it's a lesson to never trust public opinion. It changes. Second thing, this is what always happens when Jesus isn't the king we want him to be. It's always what happens when the sinful heart finds that Jesus isn't going to be the king that that heart wants him to be. It's the same conflict that flares. It's no less true in our day. Think about it. It's one thing to have Jesus as a good teacher. Who is okay with Jesus as a good teacher? Buddhists are happy with Jesus as a good teacher. Secularists secularists are happy with it. Agnostics are happy with it. Muslims are happy with Jesus as a good teacher. Pretty much everybody is happy with Jesus as a good teacher. You go out and say, Jesus is a good teacher with some good advice. Who is going to be against you? Nearly no one. Raise the level one notch above. Jesus is the forgiver. Dies on the cross for sins. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll face a little more conflict on that one. The idea that sin exists, the idea that he has to die for sins. There'll be more conflict. Jesus is the forgiver. But you'll find more openness to that, that idea as well. You look at Pew uh, surveys on what Americans believe about Jesus and forgiveness. Most Americans, at least, are okay with that idea. You want to run into trouble, you know what you're going to say? He's king. He's king. Oh, you mean to give me a nice middle-class life kind of king? No. To give me a healthy life where I'm never sick kind of a king? No. All these shoot way too low. He wants every part of who you are. He wants to be king. 
Now you're gonna run into conflict. You mean he wants to tell me how I should think, how I should talk, how I should spend my money, how I should handle my body, what I should, everything? Yeah, everything. He's king. And that's when our sinful hearts cry out with the crowd, what? Crucify him. Get him out of my way. We are going to watch Jesus die this morning through the account of his close friend, uh, John. And uh, amazingly, ironically, it's through Jesus' death that John wants to show us Jesus as king. Most kings, their resume isn't about how they die. This one's different. And so I thought on Palm Sunday it would be, number one, I didn't want to talk about giving anymore from 2 Corinthians (laughs) on Palm Sunday. Number two, uh, Palm Sunday is all about Jesus as king, and so this passage just opens up from his death the kind of king he is. So here are the questions we should ask as we walk through this. Was Jesus actually king in any meaningful way? That's one question. If so, what kind of a king is he? Biggest question of all, what should we each be asking ourselves? Is he my king? Is he my king? What aspect of my life do I need to surrender to him? So I think we'll break this up into four pictures. That's how I kind of saw it. Four pictures this morning. The haunting king. Haunting king. See what I mean by that? Number two, the rejected king. Number three, God's king. Number four, the victorious king. The haunting king, the rejected king, God's king, the victorious king. I see the haunting king starting in verses one to five. It starts with that ominous statement, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, we'll know right away we're jumping into the middle of a larger story. Jesus has already been unjustly tried by the Jewish religious leaders They think he's a blasphemer, so they sent him to Pilate. Because the Jews can't execute Jesus uh, on their own legally. They'd be in trouble for that. So if they want to kill him, and they do, where are they going to have to go? Rome. We need Rome to kill him. So they're taking him to Pilate. Pilate takes Jesus and flogged him. Now, if you know the story of uh, Good Friday, or if you saw uh, the Passion of the Christ, you're thinking verberatio. That's what the Romans would call it. Verberaccio. That's when they take the leather thongs with the bones and the metal and they rip you to shreds. The historians and witnesses would say sometimes your organs were left exposed. It's just grosser than we want to consider. And Jesus will endure that. But not here. The Romans were so wonderful that they had many different kinds of whippings. Don't you love them for that? This is Fustigaccio. This is, we want to beat you up and teach you a lesson. So it's not nearly the same thing as the thongs and the bones and the metal. It's uh, maybe more like caning. Um, Still not a party. Still not a good time. But the point of mentioning that here is, what's Pilate doing? You'll notice that as he subjects Jesus to this, Um, This kind of flogging, he subjects them to the Roman soldiers. That's a party too, isn't it? Anybody want to be subjected to a group of Roman soldiers? Just you and them, cozy-like? They beat him. They beat him. And then they make a crown of thorns. 
special plant with nice two-inch thorns, weave it around, shove it into his head. And this is dark stuff. You know, honestly, if this was what Jesus did for me, got flogged like this, beaten up by Roman soldiers in a crown of thorns, wouldn't you already be amazed that he would do this for you? He's just getting started. But Pilate's point here is to show how pitiful Jesus is for the sake of releasing him. Pilate wants Jesus released, and so this is Pilate's effort at it. So isn't it great to have Pilate as a friend? He's trying to help you, and this is the way he gets it done. Stay away, but that's the point. So when Jesus comes back out on stage, how does he look? He's beat to heck. He's, this is his second or third round of beatings. He took it last night. He I don't think they're doing, you know, little, little slaps at him. These are Roman soldiers giving it to him. He looks awful. He's puffy. He's swollen. He's bloody. He's bruised. He's got, you know, you know how, what happens to your head or your face when you get cut. It, so many capillaries. The blood just flows. A crown of thorns. And he looks. And then they put a purple robe on him. What's that all about? <laughs> This is mockery, pure and simple, some kind of king you are. And so, and, and John loves irony. Verse five, when Pilate brings Jesus out on the stage, he says, behold the man. On one level, what he means is, this is what you're all worked up about. This is what we're all looked up about. L look at him. Does he look threatening to anyone? Does he look powerful to anyone? Does he look important or imposing to anyone? He's, he's a mess. He's, he's got nothing. He's no one. And Pilate's point is, uh, maybe Jesus will learn his lesson, quit talking so big, and maybe the Jews will be like, yeah, right, he's not a big deal. Let's let him go, because Pilate wants him released. It doesn't work. Pilate says, behold the man, and what do the chief priests and the officers say in verse six? They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They cried out. Pilate doesn't know what to do. Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. He knows they can't do this, but he wants out. The Jews answered, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And now we see the source of their hatred. Because you've got to hate somebody to yell out, crucify. I don't think I've ever hated anybody that much. Crucify him. What's the source of their hatred? He's made himself equal with God. He's called himself the divine king. He has said to them and their system, you're not enough without me. You need my truth, my rule, my forgiveness. You need me. And they hate him for it. Look at Pilate's response in verse eight. When Pilate heard this statement, he was what? You tracking with me? Track with me, it's more fun. Verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, he was what? Even more afraid. What's the statement that made him afraid? This man claimed to be the son of God. You think this is the first person Pilate's passed through onto crucifixion? No. Why is he afraid of this one? 
Afraid, too. Afraid. What did Pilate just have done to Jesus? He's beaten, he's flogged, he has a crown of thorns on, we mocked him. Is that anything for a Roman governor to be afraid of? Interesting, isn't it? That's why I said the haunting king. How's Pilate feeling? He's haunted. There's something more here beyond just what the eye can see. Look what he does in verse nine. He enters his headquarters again with Jesus and says, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. I think that's because Jesus already told him in John 18. Look at John 18, 36. This is what Jesus said to Pilate, and this is why everyone hates Jesus, by the way. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, be, might not be delivered over to the Jews. I like that line. It's worth pondering. If my kingdom were of this world, if Jesus wanted to call down armies to be like, no, you can't take me and crucify me, what kind of mean army could he bring in that war? I mean, it takes one angel to kill, what, 300,000 Assyrians in the Old Testament. It takes one angel to wipe out Egypt during the Exodus, and Jesus is like, I've got hosts. What would that fight have been like? I don't think I'll be crucified today. I'm going to bring down my army. Jesus is totally saying, I could have done that. But that's not why I'm here. That's not why I've come. I'm not a king like that. I'm not a king like you're expecting. I don't need your flag salute. I'm I'm not after you paying some taxes so I can give you a good economy. I'm after so much more than that. My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, Jesus already said that to Pilate. So here he doesn't answer him. Then in verse 10, back in chapter 19, Pilate says to Jesus, what? You're not gonna speak to me? This must have been frustrating for Pilate. Again, this is not the first person to pass through Pilate's courtroom. What do you think the others are like sometimes? Begging for mercy, begging for mercy, especially when you know crucifixion might be on the menu begging for mercy. Or if somebody's just angry, the other side of the coin, what are they doing? Spitting, cursing, threatening, going down with their, uh, in rebellion. And here's Jesus, what's he doing? Almost nothing. Peaceful. Submissive, just taking it, not even arguing. It's freaking Pilate out. Doesn't know what to do, doesn't know what to think. Verse 10, you won't speak to me. Don't you know, listen to what Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus, don't you realize you are in my hands? I am the king of this moment. You should be appealing to me for help. Jesus blows me away in verse 11. And just remember, what's Jesus wearing right now? What's his hat? Thorns. What's his back like right now? It's not pretty. What's his face like right now? It's ugly. He's in chains or something like that. And he looks up at Pilate and says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. I'm just amazed at this Jesus person. I'm just amazed. You think I'm in your hands, Jesus says? Now, does it look like Jesus is in Pilate's hands? 
in every outward way. Does Jesus think Jesus is in Pilate's hands? Who's in whose hands? Pilate, you're in my hands. You're king because my father and I worked this out according to our plan. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you. Amazing. Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna answer to you, Pilate. You're gonna answer to me. It reminds me of Jesus' words from John 5. Look at what Jesus said in John 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. Back to John 19, verse 12. After Jesus answers him this, what's Pilate after? John 19, verse 12. So Pilate, from then on, sought to release him. He wants to release him. Pilate is haunted by Jesus, isn't he? Jesus is the haunting king. Here's what I mean. Does Jesus look like he's king? No. Will he be proven to be king? He's going to rise from the dead. What about our day? Read the news. Look at somebody's life. Look at how the world's going. Does it always look like Jesus is king? Everything good sometimes looks like it has a crown of thorns on it. It's mocked with a purple robe. It's beaten around by the world. Your life, your suffering, your situation, sometimes we wonder, have you, Jesus, has you forgotten me? Are you still king? Are you king over my circumstances? Are you king? And yet, just as he was proven to be king in his resurrection, guess what? He will be proven to be king when he returns. He's king even when it doesn't look like it. He's king even when we don't feel like it. He's king when it seems like everything is upside down, when it seems like evil is winning, he's king. He's in control, he's absolutely king. And so the advice, well Pilate should have taken his own advice, it's in the irony of this phrase. What was this phrase? Behold the man, behold the man. When your faith is wavering in Jesus' kingship, what should you look at? Jesus. Look at him in his word. Look at him in what he's done. Look at him in what he's said. Look at him in what he's promised, and you'll see things. You'll find things. You'll realize it doesn't always look like he's king in my outward experiences, but he is king, and he will be proven to be king. He's the haunting king, so behold him.
Second, he's the rejected king. The rejected king. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate desperately wants to release Jesus, but the Jews know his button to push. Uh, when they say friend of Caesar, that's actually kind of like a, a technical title someone could receive. If you were on Caesar's team, you get, I don't know if you got a certificate or not, maybe a little ribbon. You're a friend of Caesar. Um, there is some historical evidence that Pilate was maybe buddies with someone who showed himself not to be a friend of Caesar and who got himself into some trouble. So Pilate was in a precarious situation. And so when the Jews say, oh, you're going to go easy on someone who claims to be king? How do you think Caesar's going to feel about that? Because what does Caesar say about himself? I'm king. So if you go easy on somebody who claims they're be king, well, that's competition with Caesar. You're no friend of Caesar. Maybe we should give him a call. Maybe we should let him know. And Pilate thinks, I have no choice. I have no choice. I'm either friends with Jesus or I'm friends with Caesar. We've seen what Jesus can do. He's bloody on my patio. I know what Caesar can do. He can make me look just like this. I don't have a choice, right? What do you think? Does Pilate have a choice? For Pilate, he's haunted by Jesus. He's got a choice. On one side, comfort and career. On the other side, Jesus. We see in these verses that Pilate delivers him over to be crucified. So let me ask you, who's Pilate's king? career, and comfort. And Jesus is rejected. Can only be one king of your heart. Otherwise, the other one isn't a king. Jesus says it's about money, too. No one can serve two masters. You'll either serve God or money. Can only be one king. And that's why Jesus is the rejected king because what does he say to the world, to each one of us? I'm king. And everything else you live for, what is he saying about all those? Not king. And some people want to crucify him over that. The Jews do the same thing. It's really shocking. In verse 14... John says it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. We'll get to that. But then Pilate says to the Jews, behold your king. Why is he saying this? He's kind of making fun of them, I think. How does Jesus look again? Pitiful. This is what I think of you, Jews. This is your king. Behold your king. What do they say in verse 15, chapter 19, 15? They cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate says again, shall I crucify your king? And then listen to this. The chief priests, the chief priests of the Jews say, we have no king, but who? Caesar? That would be like you hearing me saying to someone, I have no king but Satan. And you'd be like, I feel like you changed. It's that just like, Jews in that day, 
found the Romans and their entire situation to be incredibly idolatrous and evil, even the money they found to be idolatrous. They didn't want to have anything to do with aligning with Caesar. Caesar is the enemy. He's an, he's an idol worshiper. But the Jews are in such a rage over hating Jesus in this moment. Who would they rather have? Jesus or Caesar? Guess who they pick? They picked Barabbas on the page before, a criminal, and now they're picking Caesar, the very emperor who dominates them. Anyone but Jesus. Anything but Jesus. That's what the sinful heart does when it encounters Jesus' claims as king. Anything but this. When Jesus claims to be king, our hearts get revealed. Doesn't your heart get revealed with this? That's why he's the rejected king, because he says, I want everything. I want it all. I want how you do every part of everything. I want how you think. I want how you feel. I want what you say. I want it all. And if you come to me, you're going to be mine, 100%. So he's the rejected king. What should we do with this? When it doesn't seem like he's king, we should behold him. When our hearts want to reject him, receive him. Receive him. We'll get there later, but do you think he's a good king? Do you think Jesus is a good king? You think he'll treat you better than king money, king status, king fame, king power, king, king youth, king, king sexy, king successful, king, who's going to treat you better? Well, let's get into part three. Jesus is, uh, we've seen he's the haunting king, the rejected king. Now we're going to see he's God's promised king. So we'll start in uh, 17. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. They crucified him there and with him two others. You know, each gospel has that. He's crucified with other criminals. Look what Pilate says in verse 19. Pilate wrote also an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this. Uh, this was normal for the day. They'd hang a sign of your crimes are on your neck while you're hanging on the cross. Murderer, treason, um, betrayer, whatever you might be. What's Jesus' crime? It's ironic. King. Why is it ironic? He's actually king. <laughs> so the Jews said, don't write king of the Jews, but rather I said, or he said he's king of the Jews. Pilate's like, no. So the Jews have revenge on Jesus. Pilate has a teeny bit of revenge on the Jews. And we have the ugliest moment in history right here. Jesus gets the uh, verberaccio, and he's hung on a cross. It's just evil, isn't it, what people do and what we do to the God who came to save us? That's why verse 23 is kind of surprising. I mean, some of us have read this a million times, so we're used to it. But think about how strange it might sound if it's the first time you've read it. You just got to this huge moment, right? Oh my gosh, Jesus, the one we're hoping for, the Messiah, he's been crucified. And then John wants to talk about how the soldiers were rolling dice for his shirt. 
What's your first re reaction to that? Who cares about the shirt? Is that like the last thing on your mind when you're getting crucified? <laughs> but what about my shirt? I really like that shirt. <laughs> the disciples are like, okay, he's gone. But who's going to get the shirt? And we're all like, priorities, fellas. So they gamble for his clothes. Don't tear it. Cast lots. Oh, the ominous sentence. Why does it matter? Who cares? Verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture. Soak this in, guys. How does the moment feel if you're there? It's ugly beyond words. It's ugly beyond words. Everything good seems to have fled. God seems to have disappeared. There's nothing good in the world at this moment. Everything is horrible. It feels like hell. It's terrible. It's chaotic. The devil's in control. Evil has won. And then this little phrase. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who's still in control? It's not just that he's still in control. This is the story as it was written. This was what is destined to have happened. It's all under control. There's still a king on his throne. I'm going to show you some of these scriptures. I'm going to move through them fast because my point here is not to work through each one, but just to show you that they're there. A couple ways John gives us that the scriptures are fulfilled, which is to show us that God is sovereign. He's working out what he's always planned to do. So number one, crucified by evil men, clothes gambled over. This is from Psalm 22, written hundreds of years ago by David, kind of the best king of Israel. Look at Psalm 22, 16 and 17. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've what? It's amazing because crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. I can count all my bones. That's amazing too, because you know what stands out when you're all spread out like this? Your bones. They stare and gloat over me. Was that happening? They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Wow. Verse 28, back in John 19. After this, now, listen to this language. What's Jesus doing right now? Just remember. What's he doing? He's on a cross. I mean, we cannot, we cannot fathom what this is like. We cannot fathom it. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then you get this parenthesis from John. Why did Jesus say what was about to be said? 28. To fulfill the scripture. He's checking off his list. What does he say? I thirst. And then John 19, 29. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, do you think he was honestly thirsty? Absolutely. Nothing dehydrates you, people say, like the cross. 
Has he lost any fluids? Most of them. But look at Psalm 6920. Psalm 6920. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. Is that Jesus on the cross? I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, sour wine to drink. As you read John with this angle of the scripture being fulfilled, more and more things add up. Again, who was crucified next to Jesus? Criminals. And you look at the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 12. Look at Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with who? The transgressors. Why? Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. One more way this fulfills the scripture. Down in John 19, it's not part of what we read this morning, it's what happens after Jesus dies on the cross. Look at John 19, verses 31 and following. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Uh, why do you break somebody, somebody's legs when they're on a cross? You can't breathe when you're hanging like this, and so you gotta push up on the nail that's going through both of your feet to come up and get a breath. It's really gnarly. It's, it's made to make pain last a long time. And then you shrink back down. So when you're finally out of steam, you can't push up for a breath anymore. And out of all the horrible things they've done to you, you die of asphyxiation. You drown in the fluid in your lungs. Um, so to break somebody's legs, you just quicken that process. They can't push up for a breath anymore. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who'd been crucified with him, that's Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, what did they see about him? He was already dead. We're gonna see how that happened in a moment. When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Uh, by the way, evidentially, there's some sort of scientific thing that that happens with your heart when you die in a certain way. If you want to look that up on your own time, go for it. But again, here's the important part, verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, you could be like, well, who cares if they broke his legs or not? Does it really matter? It wouldn't matter in one sense. It matters because of this. The scripture said that not one of his bones would be broken. It's actually pretty incredible to think of all the suffering he endured, and he didn't break any bones. Who cares? There's a few places to look, but John's been giving us hints. He, kept, he keeps telling us what day it is, the day of the preparation. He keeps telling us, oh, it's, it's the high Sabbath day. He tells us what time it is. And you know what it all adds up to? Passover lambs. 
are being sacrificed. Right now. The Passover lambs are being sacrificed right now. And what does that remind us of? God saving his people out of slavery in Egypt. And when the angel of judgment comes um, to punish Egypt, well, Israel couldn't get out of this willy-nilly. They're sinners too. And so there's a way for them to escape so that the angel of judgment would pass over. And what was it? You'd kill the lamb, and you put the lamb's blood over your door, and it marked you to say, forgiven, made right, I belong to God. Interesting about those Passover lambs. Look at this verse from Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Jesus is the Passover lamb. When you trust in him, his blood is on the doorpost of your life, and your sins are forgiven, and God's wrath passes over all these scriptures. He fulfills them all. What is John saying to you? In Jesus' death, he's God's promised king. This is the one who makes the story work. How are we going to be brought back to relationship with God in the midst of all the sin and evil? And the answer is Jesus is the one who makes it work. He's the one who brings restoration. He's the one who brings redemption. All the promises and images of the Old Testament find their reality in him. He is God's king. And one last nugget to show you that. Look at verse 25 again, back in John 19, verse 25. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Evidently, they needed more variety when they named their daughters back in those days. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, what do you think about this? Again, you could say, well, it's nice, but it's not really the biggest detail in the story. I don't know. Where's your true character shown? This will embarrass most of us. Your true character shown at home. Where is it often the hardest place to be a Christian? With the people you're married to, with the people you're related to, with the people you're with every moment. Any leader can look shiny and fancy on the stage. What are they doing Tuesday night at 7.30? What are they doing Friday morning? What are they, what are they doing at home? What are we seeing about Jesus? Even as, I mean, bro is on the cross, just doing a little thing like paying for the sins of the world. No big deal. Who's he got on his mind? His mom. He loves his mom. And he loves his friend. 
anyone, he wants to make sure his mom's taken care of. Don't you love a leader who loves the little things like Jesus, who thinks about the, the seemingly less important things, who care, who, when he loves, when he serves, he loves it all the way down. He loves it all the way to the end. He doesn't forget any detail. He's, he's the, he is God's king all the way through. Whether it's fulfilling scripture promises from hundreds of years ago or taking care of his mom, behold the man. This is the man. The new Adam, the ultimate David, the next Moses. This is it right here. He's God's king. Now, John wrote all this, and he said, I'm writing this that you may believe. He says it many, many times in this letter. And he says it in this area, when I'm showing you Jesus fulfills all the scriptures, I'm doing this so that you may believe. So what's the point as we see Jesus as God's king here? Do you have any reason to believe that even though he's crucified and dying, this is the king? You have every reason to believe that this is the king. He's fulfilling all of God's promises right here. So back up. Jesus is the haunting king. Behold him. He doesn't always look like he's king, but he is. Look at him. Look at him. Trust him. Second, Jesus is the rejected king. Let's receive him instead. Third, Jesus is God's king. Believe in him. Last one will be done. Look at verse 30. Jesus is the victorious king. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, maybe it's the most glorious line in the Bible, I don't know. You want to read it with me? Three words. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? It is finished. It's finished. And he bowed up his head and gave his spirit. By the way, who killed Jesus? Nobody. When does Jesus' spirit leave his body? Jesus' spirit leaves Jesus' body when Jesus says his spirit will leave his body. So what was he doing? How can he say on the cross, I mean, the rest of us on a cross are saying, it's lost, it's over, we won't make it, it's a failure, it's broken. Everybody looking at Jesus on the cross would say, this is a mess, it's, an, it's, a, it's wrong. And Jesus says, in losing, I just won. It's finished. I did it. The rest, as they say, is history. The rest of everything God's people will need until the end is as good as accomplished. It's finished. It's finished. What did he finish? Jesus told us what he was about, John 10. Look at John 10, 14 to 18. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Can't help but pause there just for a moment. Who does, how well does the Father know Jesus? Can't really put that into words. Eternal relationship and love from all eternity. Who does Jesus know? His sheep. How well does he know them? Are they just some vague blob? We're not sure who's in this team, kind of a group? Or does he know them well? By name. He knows them. Last phrase of verse 15. 
I lay down my life. Why? For the sheep. I know my sheep. I lay my life down for my sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. You didn't think you were in the Bible? You are. This is, this is me and you. We're not of that first century Jewish crowd right there. We're from a different fold. But we're still Jesus' sheep. Uh, remember uh, when Pilate wrote King of the Jews on Jesus' uh, dog tags? What languages were they in? All the big ones. Why? Because Jesus is king for all people. It's amazing. I don't think Pilate, Pilate quite knew what he was saying. Ever, by the way. Um, I have other sheep. They're not of this fold. I must bring them. They'll listen to my voice so there'll be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because, because I what? I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. So when he's on the cross and he gives up his spirit, he says, it is finished, because he did everything you need to be right with God on the cross, and there's nowhere else to look. There's no other deed to do. In, in Hebrews, we've been looking at it on Wednesday nights, and the author of Hebrews keeps saying, Jesus was on the cross once for all, once for all. Why just once? Because it's perfect. I know sometimes you and I, we look at our sins and you think, Jesus is pretty bad in here. You may need to come and die again. Or sometimes we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. You ever struggle with that? So much regret, I don't know if I can forgive myself. Guess what we're forgetting? The cross was enough. It's finished. It's perfect. We're saved. I want to know, can't you love a king like that? Can you love a king like this? 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm pretty much against kings. That's one reason I like to live in America. Balance the power. And why is that? How come you don't want me to be your king and I don't, and I don't want you to be my king? None of us is good enough for this job. We'll mess it up. We'll hurt people. We'll get selfish, right? I don't want anybody on this earth right now to be my king, but there's one I can trust. How do you know you can trust him? Because he did John 19 for you. He laid down his life for you, died for all your sins. So look at this, the one who is the source of life and beauty and goodness, the one who's wise beyond belief, the one who knows how to submit to the authority of his father, the one who will come and die for you, the one who wants your best, couldn't you love and serve a king like that? So what do you see in Jesus' death? You see what kind of king he is. He's the haunting king, behold him. He's the rejected king, receive him. He's God's king, believe in him. Fourth, he's the victorious king. Love him. Devote yourself to him completely. Because he's king. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. What a king you are. What a king you are. And uh, we each confess how difficult it is for us to submit and surrender every part of our lives to you. 
it feels like you're not king sometimes, or there's things in our lives we do not want to give up, we pray that we would be overwhelmed by your love for us and your kindness to us as God's king, that we would surrender it all to you, that we would trust you in any situation that you are reigning and that we would devote every aspect of who we are to you for your glory. You're worthy of our trust. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.